Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Have you found yourself using art as a means to process life in all its ups and downs? My guest today is one of the most authentic storytellers who has channeled relatable messages through her beautiful songs and heartwarming voice. She is a force in so many influential ways. Today, I want you to meet Laura Cortese. Laura and I had so much fun this morning, my time and evening, her time in Belgium, chatting about so many different ways that music and art have processed and allowed us to work through life's emotions. She's had some ups and downs in her life, and she's beautifully illustrated that in her songs. She talks to me a little bit about the process of how she came about doing that, talks a little bit about the process of uh, kind of organically stumbling into being a feminist voice in the industry and also part of the social justice movement in so many different ways that highlights through her music and through her choices as an artist. It was really, really fun to just go back in time with her and talk about her early days as a child when she discovered music in her family that was not really musical, but also big into music. And now today, here she is standing in a in a way that really holds so much beautiful space that is uh, kind of, she's kind of created her own voice and space. And uh, yeah, enough about me trying to tell you all about Laura. Sit tight. You are in for a treat. Laura, I can't say Laura Cortese. I have to say Laura Cortese. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. It is an absolute pleasure and honor. You know, you're one of my favorite people to talk to because we can go anywhere in conversation. We talk about, you know, being True. Italian, which of course we'll talk about a little bit. We talk about music and a lot of the things that you do. But more than anything, I think I've had a blast with you at fiddle camps where we've met, where my sons go as musicians, growing musicians and students, but uh, the party scene is where it's happening. And that's where I've really gotten to know you. So yes, <laughs> in the late sing-alongs and, you know, the fun times. And so but through that process, though, I've also watched you perform. I've heard you tell stories when you perform. And I am so intrigued with how you've... Uh, kind of conducted yourself and grown as a woman, a female voice in this beautiful traditional uh, world of music that has also brought in a really cool and contemporary vibe. So that's what I want to talk about today. A little bit of this Great. and a little bit of that. <laughs> um, I will preface, as I have most of these interviews that I started doing, that we are during the COVID-19 coronavirus stay-at-home period of time. And um, I want to know how you're coping with all this. How are you as an artist that is not touring? I know that you, like many, had to cancel your tour and a lot of cool projects because you also have an album coming out. So it's true. Yeah. How, how's this time <laughs> treating you? You know, it's been very strange, as I'm sure it has for everyone, partly because I'm, I'm here talking to you from Belgium. Mm -hmm. So our the way the government here is working is pretty different than what's going on in the U S. And so some of what is happening here, um, it's just hard to know if I've got a tour in the UK and, right. and the, and, you know, or if I've got a tour in the U S and it's hard to know what's going to be expected or what venues are, are going to hold on to the last minute, because I know a lot of small venues in the UK in particular, they don't know how they're going to survive this period. Yeah. The US, I'm sure, as well. And so the larger festivals, they decide to postpone and they have big budgets, but these smaller venues are holding on like maybe mm. this will pass over and we can still do some of these concerts. So a lot of it is the uncertainty has been the hardest part saying like, am I going to cancel this thing because I'm seeing the bigger events cancel and how can I make this tour work? Or am Am I going to just wait and see? And that's, that's true. And we had to actually postpone 
there's one festival in the U.S. that I still don't know if they've decided to cancel. Wow. But we we hit every, basically right now. I'm not allowed to leave Belgium. I mean, I'm allowed to leave. I'm an American citizen, but mm-hmm. the borders are closed, and they've advised us not to buy plane tickets. So it's smartest not to travel. Absolutely. All of the other tour dates had been canceled. And this one festival was holding on and they asked the artists, like, would you be interested in postponing till next year? And I said, in fact, I don't think I can do it this year because I don't see a, right. a possibility where I'll be able to get on a plane and come there anyways. So we postponed, even though the festival hadn't yet. So it's just been, and you know, I'm in a luxurious position with a partner who has a job that is secure in a country where I have good medical care, you know, good health insurance. I have managed to save up. I don't feel in any way in danger for our way of life, which is a total luxury, but it's, but it's still emotionally just a roller coaster, you know, seeing the news every day and, being so far from my family, being so far from friends and community. It's, it's surprisingly isolating and as cool as it is to talk on a screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, as good as it is, that's also exhausting. Yeah. You know, you do a couple of those calls a day and you're like, Oh, I know. Yeah. Everything Um, is online on the screen right now. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's just been up and down. There are days when, when I'm like, you know, we're healthy everyone, my whole family is healthy. Like that is just got to be enough. I'm got to just going to focus on being grateful for that today. And then other days I'm like, my new album is supposed to come out and we have no tour dates and I'm totally despondent, you know? And, and I'm just trying to accept those, those emotions as they come in because the next day I'll be like, well, Sweden still isn't in lockdown. I'm going to make cardamomabulad <laughs> in hopes that they go into lockdown soon enough so all my Swedish oh, friends are safe. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. No, seriously. I mean, you describe what you describe as that state of limbo that yeah. is like, you know, even religions have talked about, you know, purgatory, if you will. You know, you're between yeah. here and there. It's like that is almost the most torturous place to be in because you just don't know. The not knowing is worse yeah. than the knowing you know, the inevitable. And I, I bet that's, and, and you also carry the responsibility of your bandmates. You know, it's not just yes. you, it's, it's no. a collective. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm, I'm wanting to update them as, as every single thing gets canceled or as any plans I have. And, you know, I just was talking to um, a drummer we were going to work with in the UK about like, so to be honest right now, I know which, I know this many gigs are canceled. I don't know about these gigs. Those ones are postponed till next year. Just being able to give someone a sense of, of, of the process, where it is, yeah. where we are, what is going on. And most of the time it's like, but honestly, I don't know. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and you want to comfort them and say like, this is the plan. And when you do have a plan, like as soon as most of those you know, April and May dates were canceled. I was like, okay, great. We have a, we know what to do for this, Mm -hmm. but there, there's a lot of future time that we don't know about. And it still has that sensation of, um, of, of, yeah, just limbo. Yeah. Perfect word. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) And you, you started off by saying that you are in Belgium. Um, yes, you are originally from, you know, uh, well, you grew up in San Francisco. I know that. Yes. And then you spent a lot of your adult life in Boston because you went to Berkeley. Um, yes. I don't know what other in-betweens have occurred, but um, tell me a little bit, though, about that growing up in San Francisco from a part Italian family. Um, also, you know, music and all that. What did your life look like? When did you discover yeah. music and what in your family culture enriched you as a person and as an artist. Nice. So I have, you know, I lived with my mom. My parents were divorced. My dad, that side is Italian. He was born in Italy. So the family is like very Italian. Mm -hmm. There was always sort of our dialect was spoken from our, you know, town was spoken around the table at all the family meals. Mm -hmm. Um, And my mom, her side of the family is Irish, but a little further back but still with a strong Irish heritage um, in, in, in the ways that um, an Irish American community can be. Sure. Uh, and my, my grandmother on my mother's side actually played the fiddle. Oh. So that's, 
sort of the reason I ended up playing the fiddle was, you know, in elementary school, we got to pick any instrument we wanted. And I just was totally enamored with grandma and her fiddle playing. And in fact, my grandfather also on my mother's side played fiddle as well. And when you say fiddle, you mean actual fiddle music or violin or... So my grandmother, um, Mildred Cooney, Mildred Walsh was her her maiden (laughs) name, Mildred Cooney. She taught me the Irish washerwoman, which she did play every St. Patrick's Day, but she was classically trained. And her husband... um, my grandfather, he, it was more like, it wasn't fiddled in the way that we think of the traditional fiddle scene today, but it was, they had like sheet music of pop tunes and they would play those pop melodies. Like he could play those melodies on the fiddle. Um, so he wasn't really classically trained, but he also wasn't coming from this really deep tradition of fiddle, but he, but it was a way he could express himself and make music. Now, I was three when he died, so I don't remember him so much playing the fiddle, but we have his instrument. I do remember my grandmother, and I have her fiddle, and we – I mean, there's photos of us playing together, and and it was definitely, like, you know, a big part of why I did it. So that's actually, like, the more – where the musical side came in, and on my mom's side, I mean, no one – no one's a musician at all. Like my grandmother was like, I had to practice too much. My children are not doing this, but they all like one of my uncles, he, my mother tells me stories about how he used to like stand and protect, pretend to conduct orchestras. Like, like, you know, with the baton, like fake baton. Um, My boys both did that (laughs) when we would go to the symphony, they'd bring chopsticks when they were like two or three and literally sit in their seat and conduct. So I'm very familiar (laughs) with that scene. I love it. Yes. And oh, that's and, too and, cute. But my mom's side, they also like this in the San Francisco Bay Area. They have every year a Sing It Yourself Messiah. So mm-hmm. I, my mom used to like practice her part on the cassette tape in the car, and then wow. go to it. And I remember my other aunt like playing, you know, on holidays playing guitar and like running little sing alongs with the kids. Oh. But but it wasn't like there's no tradition. There's no no one is um is any kind of professional, professional or mm-hmm. even. Or even amateur, like mm-hmm. they're, it's just something at some point that they kind of did that they kind of have going on. Um, so it was, I was really the one that was like, no, no, I, I, I'm having fun with this and I'm going to keep doing it. But it wasn't really until I met a little girl camping um, at Lassen Volcanic National Park, which is where my family has gone camping every year since my mom was born. Um, and the park, uh, Anyways, we met a little girl who was going to Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddling School, Whoa. which is in the Santa Cruz uh, Mountains, Boulder Creek. And she said, I'm going to fiddle camp next week. <laughs> and I was like, I want to go to fiddle camp. you know. Oh. And um, my mom's like, so what's the deal with this fiddle camp? <laughs> and I think it was the next year I was 12 and I went for the first time. Is this little girl um, someone we now know or you never? No, oh, you just know. So oh, she wow. did go for a few years. Her name is Sarah Belden, mm-hmm. but she, um, I mean, I do know that she, she does exist. I did see her. She came to the, um, Valley of the moon end of camp concert last year. Whoa. She still lives in Santa Cruz. Oh, wow. Um, but, but she doesn't come to camp anymore. Yeah. Um, and hasn't for a long time, but She's the reason that I heard about it, the reason I started to go. And that was really the first time I came into it, like a sort of non-school, non-classical mm-hmm. setting um, where you were learning by ear, where the social interaction was maybe a bigger part than the instruction that where your actual, how how many tunes you knew was really only in function of participating in a social setting, getting to jam, making the joy and the party that night. And that was so different than staring at a music stand. And that was really the thing that made me think, Oh, like that's why, that's why people do like make music. This is the reason. Cause up to that point, it had really been like, I play this thing. I play this fiddle, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star or whatever. Like I was only been playing for three years when I went to fiddle camp and, and otherwise I would like listen to cool music on the radio. I loved oldies. I loved Motown. 
that's what I, I was going kind to of ask you, what genre did you listen to growing up? What influenced you? Because oh. when yeah. anyone that hears you sing and you write all your music, <laughs> you have definitely this flavor of folk, but it's also got a very contemporary sound. It's, it's, it's so relatable to so many different kinds of listeners. Yeah. So I'm very curious about your influences while you were exploring experimenting with the violin slash fiddle and discovering this whole crazy world of traditional music. What were you listening to? Yeah. I mean, m what my parents wanted to listen to. So a lot of um, oldies, like we definitely listened to the oldies station. So there was all the Motown, the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and I specifically remember my dad, he used to listen. He had this cassette of Pavarotti. Of course. Uh, Pavarotti's <laughs> greatest hits. And he had this like ridiculous like sports car. I don't even remember what it was that had like a like a, a sunroof that opened and the windows down. Mm -hmm. And he would be like, yumma, 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 yumma. Like driving around. Oh, yes. <laughs> and like screaming it out of the car. And, you know, but. My then, kids might relate to that, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, my both of my parents actually had, not that they had like good record collections from when they were, you know, living in San Francisco in the late sixties, early seventies. Oh, yeah. So all of that kind of music was, was just around. And, um, I think that's, that's the popular music that I grew up listening to until pretty late. I mean, I remember maybe around the same time as fiddle camp though, I also, I loved Elvis. When I was five Me years old, too. I was obsessed with Elvis. And Me too. I remember getting like <laughs> an Elvis cassette tape. I remember listening to um, also Thriller. We had a cassette tape of Thriller. Okay, you we... and I literally have the same taste <laughs> in music. <laughs> wow, that's insane. I know. <laughs> um, but we also, um, yeah, I remember a friend who was two years older than me introducing me to U2. Mm. and getting totally into, I think the first thing I heard was Octung Baby. And then I kind of went back and listened to Boy and October and wow. all these older U2 albums. Yeah. And I had my, you know, my disc or my Walkman, Walkman still yeah. a cassette tape, <laughs> Walkman. And I would listen to like all these U2 albums on, on cassette. So that, those are like the, the real, like earlier pop forms that I was interested in. I knew all the words and I love to sing along to those. And really my fiddle was a completely separate thing. I didn't, I didn't like go to singing class at fiddle camp. Yeah. I, wow. That's just wild to think of that. <laughs> However, but it, but it makes sense because the music you were listening to, we're talking quality music here, you know, yeah. th that, that standard that has set modern pop music. It's like, yeah. it's like what classical music is to technique today. That, that music is what is to pop music today. Yeah, like great songwriting and, you know, great melodies, great hooks. And simultaneously, I was falling in love with these fiddle melodies, it, but they were just kind of two separate universes. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the the biggest thing that my journey has been, which I think is realistically mostly inspired by Fiddle Camp and by Alistair Fraser asking the right questions of of the students there asking like, okay, well, okay, you don't come from Scotland. Like, how are you going to make this tune your own? And then extrapolating into like, well, is, is it only playing a tune that is what I'm going to do? Or mm. like, what is, what is my expression going to be? And that being the question that, that he was always asking in various ways. And, and that ha basically became the journey of how am I going to reconcile these two sides that are both totally present. And some of that work happens on its own. You just keep doing the two things and they start to influence each other. But some of it has been conscious. Yeah. Wow. About how to include them both. That, that, I mean, to hear that and to hear that your experience at camp growing up as a kid was exclusively the culture and the music. And then the, the, pop influence world or the singing world was like totally separate. And yet at some point in your life, in your artistry, in your own development, you blended those two together and made it your own because you definitely have your own sound. <laughs> Did that all happen when you went to Berkeley or was it starting to happen as a teenager? 
were you keeping those worlds still separate? Because now your you, your yeah. voice at Valley of the Moon is is kind of a staple. So it's obvious <laughs> that you found each other, your voice and your and you at Fiddle Camp. <laughs> when did that happen? Because I'm I'm curious to to kind of follow the process of that. Yeah. Well, I think I mean I do think to some degree it's happening all along. There's there's just there's some of it that can't be separated. Um, but I remember, I mean, I, th- as you were asking that, I thought of a few things, which is that like when I was maybe 14, I first met Hanukkah Castle, another great fiddler yeah. at fiddle camp. And she also was obsessed with you too. So, oh, wow. and, and she was good at the piano. So sometimes late at night we would jam on that. So there was like this, this little universe where we're, outside of the of what we would do with fiddling we weren't really like combining the two but where we would play those songs that we know yeah um and we would just you know have a have a great time singing them and and playing them but as far as really having it come to one thing in my expression i remember basically i, I was in a band and it was mostly um a, you know, a Celtic band for mm-hmm. lack of a better word mm-hmm. um, with my friends, Hanukkah Castle and Lisa Schneckenberger and a guitar player, Flynn Cohen. And when you're in a band, or I think mostly when people are in a band, you're looking for what, what do we have in common? And what we had in common was like Scottish tunes and these kinds of songs. And so it was very, you know, traditional sounding, this band called Halili. And it was when I was in college, but Halili took a little break at some point, And I was like, we're taking a break. Like, what am I going to do? I'm like, yeah, I don't have a project. I'm still in college. Do I need to make a solo album? <laughs> and so as one so does, I was like, well, as one does. So I did, I made it, I made a solo album, but then that was the first time I asked myself, like, what am I going to bother to put? Why, why is anyone going to listen to my version of X tune or mm-hmm. what is going to be different about what I'm going to put out there that makes it worth recording other than just an exercise, because obviously recording yourself is a great learning process. But if you're going to put your face on it and release it and do all that, like, what is it that you're doing that's different? And so then I went down this path of trying to figure that out. And I wouldn't say that if you, if you listen to that album, it doesn't sound, um, it's beginning to ask questions and it's, it's very, um, you know, naive in, in these, great ways. And it, and I, and I did, I tried lofty things that, wow, if I tried them now, I'd really be able to accomplish them. (laughs) Wow. I love that. (laughs) But, but like, you know, just in vocal arrangements or having a banjo play, like I remember specifically, I was really obsessed. I was dating a guy in college. He was from Sweden. He had introduced me to some like Swedish R&B band. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in this like one set of like chords. And I realized I could sing this traditional song over these like crazy R&B chords. And <laughs> then awesome. I like wrote out the chart and I gave it to like a bluegrass banjo player, Greg List, and like made him play those chords. You know, wow. it was like, but like, I, I mean, it was definitely this roundabout way, but I remember like trying to show people, I'm like, listen, can you hear how this like, and I'm like playing this weird Swedish pop song and like singing this, like in English over the top of it. Was it, was it something crazy at the time? Because now it, this is like all the trend now it's, you know. Yeah, no, I mean the, the chord thing, I mean, that wasn't crazy at the time. There was lots of Scottish no, but musicians blending playing like these, jazz chords. Blending these ideas together. Cause I think this is a fairly... I mean, in recent time, it's yeah. become kind of the cool thing to do. A lot of bands are doing that. But back in the time when you started discovering this process, as I'm sure a couple of other, you know, peers of yours were experimenting with, did other people look at you and think, nice try, kid? Or was it like, whoa, <laughs> this is kind of crazy? Um, I think it was neither. Neither. It was it was it was like. To me, it seemed like I was doing something interesting and cool. But if I also like look back at that same time, like Tim O'Brien had put out this album called The Crossing, which is basically all about the relation, you know, the relationship between, you know, these sort of traditional uh, British Isles, Scotland, Ireland, these tunes and how they came to the US. And he has all these great songs. And there's a lot of play going back and forth coming from his perspective as a more bluegrass singer songwriter. And I even participated in a dance troupe that did like a dance performance with him. So I knew about those things going on. So it it wasn't that 
um, necessarily inventive or anything, but it was, it was in my, for me, it was, it was enough. Like it was enough interesting. And I did find that a lot of people, like I still for, still will get like notes from people like, I love your album, Hush. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite of your mm-hmm. albums. And I'm like, I was like, I think I re-released it when I was 22, but it first came out when I was like 19 or oh, something, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so it was like, it just is a whole lifetime ago in, in this way. It doesn't even totally relate to me anymore, but I think, I don't think it was particularly groundbreaking. I think it was just a, a thing I was doing and it was a snapshot of that moment. And, and that was enough. And how lucky for, that, for a 19 year old. Totally. You know? How lucky that you have that documentation for your own personal growth. Because the, the, the truth is, is I know this for a fact um, from my own personal journey as, you know, a young child that re- used art and creativity to get through some difficult times and from all the people in my life who are 90% artists um, my whole life is that that form of expressing yourself is an opportunity to become more of who we are as people. The totally. art is the vehicle, right? Everybody chooses a different vehicle or way to express themselves. And art is one of those. And for you to have that documentation to look back at Hush and think, whoa, and to look now and say, <laughs> yeah, and where am I going to go from here? So with that, it brings me to my next really kind of excited question. Uh, because I, I, when I think of you, besides your voice, which is like this beautiful, smoky, kind of uh, sensual <laughs> voice, you also have an insane gift to write music, songs and lyrics. Your lyrics are very poignant because they're 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 not just your traditional love story or your there there's a I I hear in your music a lot of um self-love story. There's a lot of like processing your own mm-hmm. feelings and journey and where you stand in 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 the world and and a lot of growth in the uh, metaphors that you use in your beautiful lyrics. So how do you What's the process of writing songs? Why do you write songs? Walk me through, first of all, how you came about realizing that this is one of your biggest strengths as an artist and yeah, and and how that process looks like. Yeah, well, I would I would say that it, this the coming up with whether it was a strength or not, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't find it as a strength. I found it later and I, but I, it was along that same question with like, what am I, what is definitely going to be me Mm -hmm. where I'm not copying someone else. I'm not just playing something in the style of someone. When you write a song, if you really do introspective work, you're the only person that could have written that song. And if you're co-writing, you too are the only people that could have written it that way. So it, at the beginning, it wasn't very much about whether I was good at it at all. It was about like, this is really something where I am going to have to get better at it, but where I'm going to say what's inside of me. And, and if I can say something that's truly me, maybe I'll be so lucky that it would resonate with someone else. But I distinctly remember sitting, deciding that a couple times in my life I've done this, but deciding I'm just going to write everything I can write in this period of time, and I'm going to throw it all away. Whoa. Now, did I throw it all away? Oh, did you? Did I throw it away? Probably not, because, I mean, I can definitely think of some songs that I thought I was going to throw away. It was in a period of time where I was writing with the intention of throwing it away, because processing it, processing whatever emotion I needed to process in that moment and using songwriting to do that, or just saying, I'm going to write a bunch of songs because my skills are not there. And if I write 15 songs, I'll be 15 songs better than I was before. And I'm going to throw it away. I'm not going to worry about these being precious gems that I'm going to put out into the world. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to write them. But, you know, inevitably, if you share any of them, someone might tell you one of them, but please don't throw that away. And then you don't throw that one away. So I remember, um, so my, my father passed away when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember if I don't remember which year now, but I remember sort of coming up to a a realization that like, wow, I didn't have that many skills to process that at the time. And I'm really still struggling with that grief. And now I'm 24, 25 or whatever. And, 
I need to like, I need to really wrestle with that. And I mean, I suppose I could have gone to um, a counselor and probably, you know, it certainly has come up anytime in my life when I have gone to a counselor, (laughs) keeps recurring dealing with that. But, um, but I decided I was like, I'm going to write every song I can think about to write about my dad and I'm going to throw them all away. Well, one of them was this song called Cry, which I ended up putting out um, on a couple of projects that I did. One was called Simple Heart, which was a vocal project, and one was called The Poison Oaks. And I I did a version of Cry on both of those. I don't remember if I did it on anything else. Those Mm -hmm. were, they were all sort of projects that happened right after each other. Um, And it was just, it was from this batch of songs and I couldn't finish it on my own. In fact, I, I wrote the first two verses on my own. And then my housemate at the time, Aoife O'Donovan, yes, amazing. I, I asked her to help me finish it. Mm. And it was through her sort of interviewing me about, cause I mean, her dad is still alive. They have a great relationship. So she basically just interviewed me about my life and she was managed to extract the things I couldn't think about on my own that wow. were too difficult to think about. Like, th- there you go. She was my counselor that day. Yeah. And we, oh, yeah. And we, we finished the song, but if, so it, just to say that I think when, when you give yourself permission to throw things away, you worry less about what someone else is going to think or hear. And sometimes you get to the root of something really, um, meaningful. And that song ha- has, I've definitely like performed it out and, you know, people come up to me afterwards and like, I lost this person. I lost that person. And they're like crying, you know, like it moves people. And if I hadn't given myself permission to write about that stuff that seemed like, do I really want to release a whole album of my dad is dead songs? Like, Mm -hmm. no, No. you know, like, (laughs) but, but one, one where you touch on, on the, the poignancy of that is, can move other people and help other people process their emotions of it. I, you know, what you said right there is kind of the key to uh, really getting to know yourself. It's like the beginning process of getting to know yourself, giving yourself permission to feel without any kind of expectation or pressure or needing to then uh, pretty it up so you can present it to the world, you know, exactly. Put, put, um, you know, glitter on it so that it looks nicer so that it shines because you had the intention to throw it. And exactly. It didn't and, need to shine. <laughs> yeah, it didn't need to shine. And it's almost like that feeling when people are like feeling fearless all of a sudden because they've got nothing else to lose. And they're yep. like, well, why not? Let's just go with it. And that's and that produces the best results for sure. Uh, so you just mentioned um, Aoife, right? Yeah. Saying it, it, yeah. Yeah. She's an amazing musician. We got to see her uh, play at um, Wintergrass several years ago. Another amazing singer songwriter. You've collaborated with so many phenomenal artists, many of your peers that you grew up with, uh, many that you went to Berkeley with. Uh, right now, your project that has been kind of your thing for the past few years and I absolutely adore is your girl power band, Laura Cortez and the dance cards. Uh, I love every single one of those gals in that band. They're phenomenal forces and voices. And it's kind of my favorite thing to see that nowadays. You know, we need more and more and more of that in politics, in the arts, in, you know, everywhere in the world. We need to have those voices. And when I think of you guys or gals, I think of girl power. Um, It's kind of a big deal to have this you know, collective of women perform, be invited on tours, being selected, you know, uh, out of a batch of so many musicians. Tell me a little bit about how the dance cards came about. Tell us about the name. Tell us about, you know, the intention of this project. So, you know, I, I would love to be like, wow, I really thought girl power, I'm a feminist, and I'm going to do this. Well, you don't need to, because if you think of that... it happened more accidentally. (laughs) But what I was going to say was, is it's because you are the living embodiment of that, you you don't think of it that way. You just are. And it it didn't, and that is down to the last, you know, authentic drop. I, what happened was I was still on this quest, this very personal self- centered mm-hmm. <laughs> quest of like, mm-hmm. how am I going to express myself best? And I, I did this series of projects where I collaborated with people from different communities that I 
uh, loved working with. I made an album with my singing buddies from Boston. I made an album with my friend Jefferson Hamer just as a duo electric guitar and fiddle on one mic. I made a crazy sort of indie rock collective project with, you know, five different friends producing two tracks each. Mm. And I decided to make a track where there was shared songs over all of these, but I decided to make an album where the sort of instruments surrounding the songs was the people I grew up with at fiddle camp. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the people that lived where I lived in Boston and really the majority of the players who were still playing and performing happened to be women. And they were the people I called Natalie Haas, Brittany Haas, Hanukkah Castle, because I realized, you know, when I did the same song with Jefferson or my friends in Boston or at fiddle camp, those, they sounded completely differently. And I, I, wanted to share those different versions. But when I did the version with the fiddles, something just clicked and I, you know, fiddle and cello. And I thought, well, this is really where I come from. Mm -hmm. It's really, um, what it it is different than what's going on elsewhere. There's it, the instrumentation is different. Um, and, and it feels authentic. So I, I started to tour that based on that album. And as, as any project that's touring, what happens is so-and-so is not available. Mm-hmm. Who can else can do it? And you start to weave in all these players and you start to meet more and more people. And when certain people would get in the van, it felt like a band and other people would get in the, in the van and you're like, Oh, I'm so glad I get to hang out with my good friend. But it, it didn't have that um, sort of investment of everyone's sort of focused in the same direction. Sure. So, um, so basically, you know, we'll, we'll go through like another mini moment of telling you a little bit about a trauma, but I was leaving on my CD release tour for mm-hmm. into the dark. And my husband at the time told me he wanted a divorce the day before I left to drive across the yuck. country. Yeah. Yeah. But also now I'm at this point in my life, it's laughable because my, I'm very happy, but, um, it was <laughs> terrible but we're like driving across the country on this release tour i'm releasing an album that's called into the dark and the whole like it's very sad album and like singing songs every night but in in the van were you know two people valerie thompson and marielle vandersteel who had been saying we want to be a band like we want to make this a band and it was just the perfect moment to be like yeah that's what we're doing and anything else can just go away. And they were such, they were so strong for me through that. It was really incredible, but it was basically then that we decided, okay, this isn't Laura Cortese and whoever she's bringing, we're going to, this is going to be a band. We decided to do, um, a Facebook contest, uh, (laughs) the classic to have to be named. And so we took all these, Input. And I mean, there were some pretty terrible names um, <laughs> suggested, but we had one friend who texted us probably 50 names, you know, like mm-hmm. every day would just like text more and more names. <laughs> and um, he continually texted us some version of the dance cards, dancing cards, the dance, you know, like not, no, he never said dancing cards, always the dance cards or so, somehow Laura and her dance cards or, I can't remember all the variations, Yeah, but none of us like that name. And when we went through it, we went through the first round of all the names we thought we liked. They were all bands already. Oh, So we no. went back to the list. And then when we went back to the list the second time, the dance cards came up on all of our lists. And so we just decided to go for it. And that guy's name is Zach Hickman, Zachariah Hickman. He's a great bassist, but a multi-instrumentalist, arranger, producer, works with um, Josh Ritter, but he's also just a whimsical character. And Mm -hmm. what he's doing during this moment of time is he's um, marching around his neighborhood in Watertown, Massachusetts with his sousaphone that is painted (laughs) like the Loch Ness monster. No way. (laughs) He just, he does a, he does a parade of one every day and just, Oh wow. Brings joy to his neighborhood. I mean, he's that kind of whimsical character. So So like, of course he named the band, the dance course, you know, he's that kind of guy. Um, and so, so that, that was sort of how we came up with the name and then continued to tour. And over time, that picture, as you mentioned, has, has evolved Mm -hmm. to include, um, at this point, 
the, on this album that we just recorded, um, two different bass players that have been touring with us for the last uh, several years, Zoe Gigano and Jenny Magania, mm-hmm. came to Belgium to work on it. Two different fiddle players, Jenna Moynihan and Sumaya Jackson, came mm-hmm. to Belgium to work on it. The producer, Sam Kassir, and Valerie Thompson, who's been there since she played on my very first CD release show for wow. Hush. But then also we've been touring all this time together. And she's a fellow Berkeley person. A fellow Berkeley mm-hmm. person. Actually, most of a lot of those people are Berkeley people. Mm-hmm. And then um, we also brought over Dan Goodwin to engineer and play drums. So those, there are two men that got to participate in, yeah. in the making well, of the new yeah. album. And that's fine. But, um, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. But, it, but it's, it's, a, it's, and there's also, I mean, there are other people that I've, started playing with since we've recorded the album that are, you know, in being, you know, part of this, this community of, of strong musicians who also happen to be women. And it's interesting. I didn't really think about the fact that they were women until I started getting interviewed about it. And people started asking me like, okay, is this like a feminist choice? And I was like, well, I was just playing with my pals from fiddle camp, but it keeps getting asked which makes me think you think it's exceptional, which makes me wonder, how do you not know so many female musicians? I know thousands. I think it's because, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it's because of the space. I think, you know, just thinking about it now, I look back at the 80s and um, the Go-Go's and the Bangles and Bananarama, and that's it. And then I think of a little closer in time, Destiny's Child. And the yeah. Spice Girls. That's about it. You know, yeah. it is a unique thing to see in mainstream. And while it's happening so much in traditional music, perhaps, it, it's still... And there's also something about the independence that your band kind of um, exhibits and the space that you own. Because you're doing your own, you know, material, you're writing from your own experiences, you're you're bringing forth a very genuine, lived perspective I think that is unique and right now I think more than ever as we talk about you know social justice because social justice is touches upon so many underserved and also um, underheard communities including women you know people of color um, immigrants you know the, the list goes on and on but I think there's something right now in the rise of the feminine energy. And, you know, I know people are allergic to the word feminist as if it's something negative, but it's not. I mean, uh, I'm, I live at home surrounded by men. My mom lives mm-hmm. with me now, but, you know, I have sons. I have three sons. My husband, I'm married to a man. And so there's a lot of masculine energy around me. And they're all feminist men because they do believe that a balance is necessary yeah. in that energy. And you you definitely display that with so much force and so much uh, confidence. I think that's what's so attractive about it. You did mention several of your albums. One of the things that I think is really cool about the majority of your albums, is I love the covers. And most <laughs> of them are Adam Agee, another phenomenal musician and artist. He's kind of yes. spectacular and uh, a very unique talk about whimsical. You know, he's got his own whimsical uh, as expression. Uh, how did that come about, having him always be sort of your designer for the albums? Yeah. Well, talk about someone who's really... I remember actually when I got divorced, he gave me a book um, talking specifically about the masculine and the feminine energies. Whoa, and, that sounds like him. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like him. <laughs> and I mean, he's definitely a feminist. Um, but I met him at Fiddle Camp and I... I remember working with him on, I guess, I can't remember the first thing we worked on together. Even the Lost Creek, my album, Even the Lost Creek, mm-hmm. um, which was, I guess, my second album. And he, I just was so enamored with how creative he was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, okay, send me your photos. Here's a here's a draft. It, it, he, we, we had co- conversations about what I wanted to express and about what went into the making of the album and, you know, kind of way he took, he took way more information in than, than I was expecting. And then, and then came out with something, you know, he really wanted it to be an extension of the musical expression that was already being worked on. And so every time I've made an album since then, 
I mean, I've even at times I have attempted to work with other people just for the sake of variety, expanding my own. I mean, every time you try to work with someone else, you learn something, you know, but I've often found that he just, he is constantly expanding my awareness of, of the world and visual um, interpretation of music that it, it always, it always suits what I'm working on. The one album that is, I mean, before working with him, there are projects, but the one album since then is California Calling, which is my most recent album that's been released. Mm-hmm. But that one, I used my own film photos. I saw that. <laughs> so that I, I love that. The only exception where I didn't use Adam. And it's special. Art, but yeah, yeah it, I mean, it was, it is special. And, but for this new album, I've gone back to working with Adam or not gone back. I've worked with him all the way through on, yeah. on t-shirts and designs, but it's just, he's one of my favorite people to talk with about creativity and art and expression and just to think about the world with. Yeah. So, and and getting to work with him on any project, we go down those, those like deep rabbit holes of Mm -hmm. like, what, what do we really want to say here? It's not just something we're like slapping on the cover. Right. It has to be part of what we're communicating. Well, you're in, it sounds like you're enriched beyond the end product. It's like the process is what's so gratifying and in, in definitely. Yeah. So couple of things. I definitely want to make sure that we we touch upon. You are, again, so such a, a tree of various branches. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask about, and this is one of my favorite albums. Ironically, there's no words in it, uh, which I think is your only instrumental album, and it's all instrumental, um, All in Always. Yes. Uh, also the cover designed by Adam, even though it's not a drawing. Um, mm-hmm. that album is kind of a, uh, what I, I think what I, the reason why I, I love, even though it sounds very kind of folky, traditional, uh, and it's got the Celtic, it's got the Quebecois, it's got the, uh, Scandinavian Galician. music, Galician yeah. as well. Yeah. It has, um, it, it, it's almost like you are paying homage to everything that brought you to, you know, the full rounded musician that you are, cause it definitely has that flavor and it's instrumental, which again, your voice is such a part of the instrumentation in all of your albums and your performances. It also tells me that you are about community, about connection, about relating to people, about having that that chosen family, including, you know, your own. It just has a really connect like a connection vibe about it. Tell me a little bit about the process I'm of that album. I'm glad you got it. <laughs> oh, totally. You got the it's point. <laughs> it's very very it's yeah, it's palpable. I, um, so that album, I, I, I think I have often still struggled with that idea of like, how, how do these two, you know, I love playing tunes, but I don't always love playing tunes. I love playing tunes sometimes. And there are some moments and there are some situations where I find myself wanting to stay up all night playing tunes, you know, and, um, I had, that album came together out of two things. One, I had had a series of experiences with people who I, I wanted to stay up all night playing tunes with, but also it came pretty soon after my divorce and my previous work had all been with my ex-husband and I couldn't really find a way that I was going to make another album without him in my head. It Mm. was like, what am I, we've, we've made music now for five years or something together. And where do I go that I feel like I don't need him and wow. where I feel confident standing in my own two feet. And I was like, actually, I'm going to go back to the fiddle. I'm going to write a bunch of tunes. And then I'm going to play with the people who I feel so joyful with that I want to stay up all night playing tunes. I mean, obviously I'm not totally standing on my own two feet. I'm collaborating with all these people. I'm being held up yeah. by yeah. other, other people. Nothing is ever done in, in absence, but something that I felt I could spearhead something I felt I could bring people together. Um, and so I went to these, these three traditions. I went to Spain and Galicia. I went to Sweden and I went to Quebec and I did them just one week after the other. And I went to each of those places and I picked a few musicians in each place that I had this sort of 
chemistry with and and in in I asked all of them to submit a tune if they had one so we also recorded a couple of their instrumental tunes and there is my favorite singer in the whole world Chisco yes um, yes <laughs> everybody Feo. praise and worship at the altar of Chisco thank you very Chisco. much <laughs> I adore he, him he does sing on the project he does Spanish. yeah he does now, on I, one song but I meant to but ask that's you the only vocal on it yeah. did he uh are, is that a traditional like did he bring a traditional Galician tune in that or is this something yeah. that was the, I think I believe it is a traditional tune and so the the track is called Ondas y Chairas um, and because I had originally written a tune, which I called waves, which is what ondas is. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's called like Viva Chairas is the beginning of the mm. melody that he sings. And that is a traditional, um, Galician song, I believe. Cause I basically said, is there any traditional song where this could be part of it? This could be under it. This mm-hmm. could be the instrumental, like, and, so we, we basically just, he was like, yes, I have one. Of course, of course <laughs> we, he does. <laughs> we tried it together and we made an arrangement and then we recorded it, you know? Um, but it was very collaborative. The whole project was all just like, okay, I, I bring you this melody. What are we going to do with it? And and we did it all pretty much right then. It was like, okay, we have two days of rehearsal and then we're going to go and we're going to record for two days. And there was no, I really wanted it to be um, just about this thing that I loved and about that connection. So I also, I didn't want us to be editing or, you know, perfecting. I Mm -hmm. said, we're going to play it. We're going to take the best of three or four takes and that's what we're going to put out. And if some song doesn't go well at all, maybe we don't put it out. You know, Mm -hmm. that's okay. It sounds like Um, a Quebecois kitchen party, as they say. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, it just was, I wanted it to just be about, finding my joy again in music and it's so, so it's it's truly so um visible for lack of a better word because it's something that you actually hear but it it really is it does have that kind of like i'm in this space i didn't know the backstory of course but mm-hmm. it's interesting how that definitely translated because there's something about that where it's like going back to the roots there's something yeah. really really honest and um pure and innocent about it about that sound yeah. about that that project uh, i love it anyway um <laughs> my all-time favorite song of yours though is pace myself which Woo-hoo. i will definitely play a second of it uh pace myself the reason why i think i relate to it so much is this the story of the song and you talked about how um you know, being kind of a, a force, especially as a woman, you know, being told constantly, you know, yeah, oh, gauge yourself, pace yourself, you know, watch it, you know, not too much. Story of my life. So I really relate <laughs> to that. I think maybe it is a little bit our Italian genetic makeup. And part of it is just, you know, our generation and how we believe that um, the world needs to kind of sh- tilt or shift. Mm-hmm. Pace myself. How did that come? Like, I, I do want to know. And by the way, the music video is epic. Anyone listening to this, please go (laughs) Google it on YouTube. It is like my favorite video of all time because it's loaded with badass women. So it's true. It's true. So, well, the interesting thing, um, I, I have actually struggled with this song in particular. Um, but I think, I think I've come to figuring out how, how these things all relate. What, what actually happened was I was in, um, you know, I was online dating. Mm-hmm. Okay. These and are the it days. Was not, and it was not going well. And I was really sort of in this moment with someone who was ultimately like gaslighting and weird. Mm. And it was the last person that I dated before my now partner who I'm living in Belgium with. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it had at least that, uh, that space, mm-hmm. but I got this series of text messages from this guy. And I showed them to my friend, Anna Eggy, who's an incredible songwriter, mm-hmm. one of my favorite songwriters. And she was like, Oh my God, we have to write this song because <gasps> they, they were like, I mean, they were, they, it was like the song was writing itself, like reading these text messages. And it was in that moment, we were just very focused on, we didn't even have a story, you know, we were, it was just sort of flowing out of us. And we went to the attic, we were at, um, so I run this thing called miles of music camp with my good friend, Kristen Andreasen. And for a few years, we 
did a house camp in Boston Mm -hmm. and that we were at that house camp in Boston. So we ran up to the attic and I was like, you know, just tapping out the rhythm on like, um, like on our notepads. And she was, and I was like playing a little guitar and we were just starting with these few lines that were related to this text message. And we just kept talking and, and quickly writing. It came together very quickly. So wow. it was inspired by this, this very, this moment of fe- feeling like, um, ultimately like things were not lining up. It felt very, uh, like just another time in my life where whatever was being asked of me or expected of me was just did not serve me. Mm-hmm. And, but, but it wasn't until we really recorded the song that I started to think about like, what does this, what does this even mean? Which happens when you write really quickly, you're extracting something from within yourself and you can't make sense of it till much later. And it, and then over time I started to think about all the ways that in life I had been asked to be a different thing than I was or expected to be a different thing than I was and how many people are asked that. Mm-hmm. And, and with the video specifically, I, I wanted to highlight women because I do think there's, there are a lot of ways that women are asked that. Um, but partly I wanted to highlight women because it was that same question of like, people do think what we're doing is unique and it is of course, in its own way, but it's also just less visible. People are not as aware of how many women are doing things. And I have some visibility. And if I could share that visibility in any way, showcasing as many of the powerful women musicians that I know, also trans musicians, femme, uh, female identifying musicians. And I just cast it as far as I could and asked as many people to participate. And, And what you see is pretty much what I got. Um, we asked way more people than were, were in the video, but, um, yeah, it's beautiful because it's, it's multicultural, multiracial, multi-age, like generational. Uh, and it is, it's like across the board. It's just, it's such a, an empowering visual that go. And of course, many familiar faces to, to me, but it's, it's such a, it's such an expression. And what you were saying about the song kind of writing itself and then you eventually making the connection, it's kind of the story of artists, right? You are a channel. When that channel opens, you just have to let whatever's coming through come through. And it happens to be coming through your own experience. Yeah. But it's also lending itself to so many other experiences in relate- and, and relating to so many others who are sharing that experience. And then boom, the explosion happens. And that's what you know, books and movies and songs do, uh, they lift us and they comfort us because it's that chain of reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every time I work with Anna, I feel like she has that channel open and I just try to get the channel open. Yeah. Well, your channel is very (laughs) open. I'll tell you that. Um, One really important project that you've also worked on is the um, Stack, the Sustainable Touring Art Coalition that produce the plastic free july that you were involved in the green music australia i'm putting all these words together to kind of bring forth the project that ultimately i got to see the video that you made which was in relation to artists minimizing the use of plastic water bottles when they tour and bringing awareness of what plastic is doing to the world um tell me how you got involved in this project yeah. So I'll separate, I'll, I'll pull those little strands out yes. that you mentioned. So, um, it was, I think it was 2016 or 17. Can't remember. I got an email from a friend, um, who was doing plastic free July and it was sponsored by green music Australia. And basically you were asked to make the commitment to change your writer to say that you didn't want any plastic water bottles on stage and you didn't want any plastic water bottles backstage. You wanted a pitcher or a tap and that you were going to bring your own bottle. And you basically took a photo with your water bottle and then changed your writer and committed to doing that for the month of July. And I asked everyone in the band, like, are you, are you down? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And everyone was up for it. And we also, I think we did it for July And then we pretty soon realized like, okay, water bottles are cool and that's great. That's less plastic, but we're also buying coffee every day. 
so we all then got reusable coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. So we, we so we <laughs> could really, I mean, okay, maybe the the paper cups is it's not as bad as the plastic, but it still, really yeah. still was a lot of waste, you know. And so we started to tour that way, and and we really we got a lot of great comments, especially in Scandinavia. They were like, "Thank you for doing this," and hey. you know, and and for 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 me, really committing to it for a month made you think about everything differently. Like, okay, I'm, I'm bringing my own water bottle, but if I'm in the airport, am I really going to buy that salad that's in a plastic container? Hmm. I haven't had enough vegetables mm-hmm. today. Is there a wrap that has vegetables that's maybe wrapped in paper or wow. something that's, you know, and just really committing to it for a month made you ask all these questions that slowly changed how you, how you do it. So fast forward to Sustainable Touring Arts Coalition, which is something that Laura Risk and Liz Knowles created, spearheaded, and they were asking themselves these same kind of questions, but also transportation um, to and from gigs, flights asking for carbon offsets with when you negotiate a gig, all these ways that our industry is impacting the environment and that it shouldn't be just on the artist to to make these changes, but we should, the artists should use our forum that we've created to bring the questions to the industry as a whole. And so that's what the sustainable touring arts coalition is really trying to do is bring these questions up as an industry and to talk about it more. And so Laura risk and I were at the Sierra fiddle camp and we had, I think Liz Knowles and Laura had talked about like, can we, can we start a challenge where we ask people to to sing a song mm-hmm. and and c- kind of commit to a not touring with plastic and t- to changing their writers. So we rewrote this French pop song "Zuby Zuby Zoo" to be um, to have lyrics that that had to do with giving up plastic and and bringing your water bottle and and it was a really fun video to make with a whole camp and to really get the whole camp. I mean, two hundred people That's focused so on this idea. Yeah. And, and asking those questions, I mean, right after camp, a lot of people were asking those questions of of other ways they participate, other venues they go to. And I I think that's actually one of the hardest things about this moment that we're in right now Mm -hmm. is when, when you come together in a camp and you ask these questions and then you all go out and you continue to ask those questions for a while, you ask them for a while. It's just like committing to it for a month you do those things for a while, but it does start to fade and you need to come back and ask yourself the question, make a commitment again yeah. for a, a, a period. So until it just becomes, you've changed many aspects of your life until right. it just becomes the way you live. Um, but that, that was sort of, you know, that's my journey with, with that. And, and yeah. it's actually great when I'm home because you know what, I'm not flying. I'm not using anything disposable. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the the earth and the world is showing that to us. Ever since we've yeah. been at home this past month, it's kind of crazy. I, you know, we live in the Pacific Northwest. I live in the woods. And every day I go for my walk, I have to tell you, I've, I'm blessed every day to be able to hear birds and frogs and all that. But right now, everything is louder. The colors are brighter. It's kind of crazy to see how that really responds yeah. so quickly. So a thought like that is, again, another chain reaction into something yeah. grander and better and bigger. Um, Laura, I can't believe we are coming to the end of this. There's still so much to talk about. <laughs> Honestly, this has been my problem with every single podcast. Maybe I am a chatterbox sure. and I'm super curious, but there's just so much that I, yeah, I, I, before we completely say goodbye, I do want to mm-hmm. do what I've done with everyone. And that's a speed round kind of rapid fire questions. Okay. First answer Great. that comes to mind. Okay. Be concise. <laughs> uh, who would you love to write a song for? For? Yeah. Mm. My mother. Oh. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> it's time. Yeah. Um, okay. The fiddle for you, pizzicato or arco? Because I know you play both and especially pizzicato oh. a lot. You strum arco. it. Arco. You... The bow is so great. Okay. The bow is the only, yeah. The okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> jamming or raiding? <laughs> raiding! Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Spaghetti or gnocchi? Gnocchi. Well, that's a hard one. Um, okay. <laughs> Would you rather have wings or x-ray vision? Wings. Yes. Uh, okay. Puzzles or board games? 
Uh, board Neither? games oh. if I have to choose. <laughs> Um, okay, now that you mentioned Elvis earlier, favorite uh-huh. favorite Elvis song? Oh, um, Trouble. Is oh, that, Trouble, that's a good trouble? Mm-hmm, That's a good one. Came to the right place. Yeah, that's Born a good one. Standing up, talking back. <laughs> Mine is Suspicious Minds. Um, nice. Favorite flower? Oh, the Snapdragon, but really when it's Whoa. orange. Wow. It's an orangey colored Snapdragon. That's that's gorgeous. Wow. Uh, favorite dish to cook? And we didn't get to talk about cooking, but I want to know what your favorite dish to okay. cook is. Oh, well, I think people most appreciate when I make them pasta, fresh pasta. Mm. And I do like to be appreciated in that way. But I really like to have variety. I like to really change culturals that I'm cooking, cultures that I'm cooking from mm-hmm. what I'm using as often as possible. So I like to experiment, mm-hmm. but... When you said I like to be appreciated, I do have one more question because that's my finale. But when you said I like to be appreciated, I have to interject and say here, um, I think that's an Italian thing. Because when I, (laughs) when I cook, I have to like, and I, and I love to cook. And my husband learned this early on in the beginning. He was like, it's good. I'm like, it's just good. And he's like, no, it's, it's good. And I'm like, it's not great. Like it has to be more than, he's like, well, do you want me to like to throw a parade? What do you want? And I'm like, yeah, kind of yes. <laughs> seriously. All right. The final question. And it's going to be fun to ask you as another fellow part Italian, the most, Im- the most important question of all pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? No. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love you. Okay, there you go. The boys are disgusted. Amazing. They are so American. It's gross. Um, Do you know that Swedes put banana on pizza? No. no. Yes, banana? Sorry. Like if if you were telling me a tropical country was putting banana on pizza, but the Swedes? Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, what a way to start the morning for me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. I love that we made it work with our time difference. I think we're nine yes, hours thank apart. You for me. Thank you for delaying your dinners a little bit for me. I really yeah, appreciate no it. Uh, I hope the summer plans unfold and we all reconvene and get to do what we do together. And I hope yes. you get to get back on tour. Um, please check out Laura's, all of her amazing projects. But the one that we are looking for Released May 1st, I believe, is the new album. Oh, guess what? It's delayed. It's delayed. Along with everything. Yeah. July 16th okay. or 17th, can't remember, is the current um, release date for Bitter Better. And I believe you said you're going to play another little snippet, which will be sort of where the title track comes from, um, Treat You Better. Yes, which is an epic, epic tune. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk, edited and mixed by Eros Falk, original music by Dante and Eros Falk, recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Mm-hmm.